So anyone who's listening to the recording, this is the 4th of March call. Um, without a laptop in front of me that has access to the internet, I can't actually look at the agenda. Um, but I'm not sure if anyone posted anything specific. Matt, are you aware? Is there something there that um, anyone had? Otherwise, I have one or two suggestions. Yeah, when I checked about two hours ago, there was nothing. So unless there's been something in the meantime, I'm sure somebody on the call can just mention it. Okay, so um, is anybody got any topics they particularly want to discuss? Um, from my side, I wanted to talk a bit about open payments and some of the uh, discussions we've had over the last week or two. We had um, Stefan in Cape Town, so we had a day off-site um, where we talked about open payments with him and Sabine. Um, so that was really valuable. We want to give some feedback on what we talked about there. Any other topics from anyone? Okay, um, so let's start there. Uh, again, apologies for kicking things off late. Um, in terms of open payments, I wanna say firstly, big thanks to Matt. Uh, Matt has been doing a great job of getting the website updated, um, capturing kind of our latest thinking and uh, uh, around how we, we see open payments working at openpayments.dev. So if you go there, you'll, I think, get a good gist of, of where, um, where we see things going. Um, Kieran, I think, is on the call. He's busy doing a complete overhaul of this sort of look and feel. So hopefully it'll look a little bit prettier um, fairly soon. Uh, although I feel like my beautiful purple-based palette is actually quite pretty. Um, others disagreed. Um, so yeah, keep keep tracking that and we'll obviously post on the, the Slack as that gets updated. Um, one of the things that I think is, is worth mentioning about our discussions in Cape Town last week is the connection between open payments and uh, web monetization. So I think there's there's been a lot of debate um, around uh, specifically solving for and uh, uh, specifically solving for like proof of payment and, and how does a website know um, that it's been paid and we were trying to solve it using open payments to allow the website to basically contact its own wallet through like a back channel and, and check that payments have been received which need, meant you need to do things like um, correlating the events you were getting in the browser to the payments being received by your wallet and saying, well, you know, how much have I actually received and then tracking that and um, comparing it to sort of how much content you're delivering or whatever it is, make sure you're receiving, you know, sufficient payments and et cetera. Um, we moved away from that. I think you'll recall from the last call where there's a great proposal, um, which I think Brandon has started implementing um, around receipts. I think the spec and the proposal for that's been up for a while. So if you haven't had a look at it, go and have a look at the, um, the GitHub issue. Um, maybe Matt or Brandon or someone can post it into the, into the Zoom chat. But the gist there is it's an update to the stream protocol itself where um, the uh, receiver uh, would be able to establish a sort of a second shared key. Um, this is a high level description, which can be used um to effectively sign uh each packet that they receive so it's actually it's an hmac but but what they would have is a cryptographic proof every time um a payment is sent a cryptographic proof comes back to say it was received and 
just reiterating here, the, the purpose of this is you've got a sender. So in our case for web monetization, that's like the web monetization provider, someone like Coil. You've got a receiving wallet, um, but you've also got a third party, which is the owner of the receiving wallet. So the, the website. Now the website's not involved directly in the receipt of the money, but they want to in real time know that they're getting paid so that they can deliver content. And so this is the problem that receipts solves. Um, separate to that, we still wanted to pull together open payments and web monetization and how the interactions work to uh, set up the payments and also understanding like the business objects that we've been talking about with open payments. So things like invoices and mandates and how those work with web monetization. Our current thinking, um, and we'd be interested to hear if, uh, what people think of this, is that whenever a sender streams money to a receiver, those incoming payments are allocated to an invoice, always. Basically, they're always allocated to an invoice. Now, how that's done specifically is kind of up to the receiving wallet. So uh, it could be that for web monetization, all payments streamed in within a 24-hour period are just accounted for under a single invoice. And the, the goal here is to create something that is, makes sense to the owner of the wallet when they look at um, the money that they've received. So, you know, wallets might in the future offer features like allowing the website to actually explicitly create invoices and have web monetization or, or payment pointers that will result in the uh, payments going to different invoices. So for example, as a website, you might get three or four payment pointers for different sections of your site. And so you can, you know, say that like a new invoice, you create new invoices all the time, which track the money you receive for each different section, whatever the case may be. But the, the purpose of the invoice is kind of an aggregation of incoming payments. Uh, and the specifics of how you create an invoice um, is left to the use case. So in the web monetization use case, and uh, nothing about actually starting the web monetization, starting the payment is, um, is uh, explicit about uh, the creation of the invoice. That's kind of left to the wallet to decide how they want to do that and, and in, in conjunction with the owner the, of, the, of the wallet. So um, in this case, the website. So the other thing that's left to then pull together is how does open payments gel with SPSP? Um, uh, and currently what happens is, you know, you get an account with a wallet, they give you a payment pointer, that payment pointer resolves to a URL. And if you do an HTTP get on that URL, you get back stream credentials, you get back in an ILP address and a secret, and you can start sending money um, to that address using that secret with stream. And the understanding is that if you do that, the money you send will go to the, per, the owner of that payment pointer, right? So that's the sort of implicit um, sort of guarantee there. Now, um, what we've done with open payments is we've said, if you get a payment pointer and you convert it into the URL, we're actually only interested in the origin portion of that URL. So the, you know, like the, the host name and port stuff. And the reason for that is what we do is we take that and we follow the OAuth RFC, um, the OAuth server metadata RFCs process for taking that, determining a server metadata well-known URL, hitting that URL, and instead of getting back um, 
credentials to stream payments, you get back a list of all the service endpoints that the server offers, that this wallet offers. Um, and that would be endpoints for creating invoices, invoices for creating mandates, for getting tokens, for doing authorization. So there's a bunch of standard OAuth ones, and then we supplement those with the open payments ones for mandates and invoices. And so the two actually work together. They don't, they don't step on each other's toes. Um, but what we have to still discuss uh, is, does the fact that the payment pointer is used in two different ways cause fragmentation? Does it mean that if a wallet gives you a payment pointer, it may work for open payments, but not for web monetization or vice versa? Is that bad for the ecosystem? Um, you know, what, what are the thoughts around, around that? So that's at a high level, I think what we discussed, Stefan, um, I see he's on the call, Don, Matt, Kieran um, may also have uh, points they want to add to that. So I'll stop there. Maybe the guys have something to add and then maybe we can discuss any questions that have come up from that. Uh, this is Stefan, so from my side, great summary. Uh, nothing to add. Uh, Adrian, the, I don't want to say that open payments as the payment point is not only used for discovery, it's also an identifier. Um, that's pretty important. Yes, yeah, sorry, very important. Um, in fact, critically important. So uh, obviously you use the payment pointer to discover the address of all the wallets service endpoints that allows you to now interact with the wallet that issued that payment pointer but obviously you still need to identify whose account you want to actually interact with. So who are you, you know, uh, sending or receiving, sending money to receiving money from, and that is still identified by the full payment pointer itself. Um, so yeah, good, good point, Matt. Um, again, without internet access, it's hard, but I, I think we've got, um, the bulk of this captured on the website. If not, we'll plan to have it there relatively soon. Um, and then, uh, you know, in parallel, we're updating this Rafiki money and Rafiki shop reference implementations to match all of this. Any other thoughts or questions from anyone else on the call? Okay. So is the concern uh, that, sorry, sorry about, yeah, go ahead. Uh, is, is a sender that only supports SPSP would not be able to pay into, you know, if they resolve an open payments payment pointer, they wouldn't be able to pay that. Like, like what's, what's, what's the specific incompatibility? Yeah, that's, yeah. So, so um, I think we've talked a bit about this before, but for us, the, the vision is that this payment point is a really powerful, Kind of identifier it's like you know it becomes for you the equivalent of your email address for like receiving messages and sending messages it's like your financial you know potentially can be like your financial identity and so what we really like is for example a flow where you download an app on your phone or you visit a website um, and use you know some service they're using and that app or service wants to interact with you in some way, either send you money, receive money from you, whatever. All you ever need is your payment pointer. So you type it in, uh, you kick off this flow where the service now goes off and discovers who your wallet is, what all the endpoints are, um, does what it needs to do you know, for its specific use case, 
takes you through like this flow, this sort of an OAuth type consent flow where you consent to the app having access to your account for whatever it needs access. Uh, and you're done. And I think like that's the that's the sort of vision we have for for what payment pointers are used for. Now the problem is if you have a wallet today, um, let's say where you've got a payment pointer that you put in your website to receive web monetization payments. And suddenly someone rolls out this really cool app that says, hey, you know, to connect our app to your wallet, just put in your payment pointer and you put it in and they try and hit the metadata endpoint on your wallet and it comes back with a 404. Um, that's a that's a crappy experience. So we, we want to get to we want to have some level of kind of normative requirements around this that say, if you want to say you're compliant with X, then these are the minimum requirements you have to actually implement. And and I mean, we have to balance that with the fact that this whole network of participants is growing, right? We've got, you know, a bunch of wallets um, and coil on a live, you know, interledger network today, uh, you know, sending and receiving payments. But even today, not everyone's doing everything. Um, and and so we have to be sensitive to the fact that like this whole thing's evolving and how do we how do we protect the user experience so that people don't try this out and say, well, it doesn't it doesn't always work or it only works half the time, but at the same time to be sensitive to implementers and like, you know, them going down going through this journey. Gotcha. Yeah, I totally agree. I think um I think uh, fragmentation among kind of the user user facing identifiers are like it only working, you know, 50% of the time is definitely something that um, yeah, we sh like would be concerning. Um, yeah, I, and, and for me, um, uh, a great example of where this has been a problem would be like open ID and OAuth, right? So I think you'll probably find very similar conversations happened, whatever, how many years ago when those standards were evolving, people were saying, this is great, you know, um, people will be able to type in their open ID URL and log in. And I, I had one of those, I like, I ran an open ID server for a while. Um, and I used to log into Stack Overflow using my open ID and I thought it was fantastic. But, you know, the bulk of the world didn't um and and it was because it didn't always work and it was clanky and um and so in the end it was much easier for the big identity providers uh which in our world we could say the big wallets to just slap their logos on the page and say like log in with google log in with facebook so the equivalent which we want to avoid is um that the easy path out is when you download the app or you visit the website instead of typing your payment pointer you see a bunch of buttons that say you know um connect your paypal wallet connect your google wallet connect your apple pay wallet like as soon as we get to that point um it's going to be very difficult to kind of bring it back to a, a more neutral open ecosystem feels like it could be a very short call <laughs> any uh, any other topics anyone wants to cover um, another thing we could discuss if no one has any further questions on open payment stuff is uh, interledger.org website um, 
I see there's been a furious number of PRs and updates and stuff going on there. Um, I think I saw David join the call. Um, David, that looks like it's mostly coming out of spring. Um, I don't know if you have any like insight into uh, what the sort of strategy is there. What a, what's, I haven't had a chance to really review them all in detail. Um, any background to all of that? Is that just a, a, a enthusiastic intern or a, a new hire that you're trying to fill a specific gap? What, uh, what's happening there? Yeah, um, actually most of this is coming from uh, hackathon feedback. So uh, Spring's been doing a number of hackathons, maybe one or two a week even. Um, and the feedback we get is usually like, hey, I want to put Interledger, I want to use this in, in the hackathon, and so how do I get started? And, you know, like two kind of prime vectors are either I Googled for Interledger or somebody said go to interledger.org. Um, and the getting started is, um, there's just a lot there. And then some of the software doesn't always work correctly. Um, some of it's outdated. So I think the, the goal there is just to make it, <clears throat> make it really easy for uh, kind of new developers that are new to the Interledger ecosystem to get started. And there's kind of like three, um, I don't know, groupings. So the first would be like, I've never heard of Interledger before and I just want like a very quick getting started so that, you know, this would be something like that's gonna be on a, like a hosted, uh, probably testnet infrastructure. Um, so we've been trying to like write like a five minute uh, guides that kind of use Spring testnet and uh, Rafiki testnet together. Um, so that's like, hey, log into wallets, see money moving back and forth. Um, next would be, all right, I've seen that uh, sort of flow as a human, and I want to put this money or put this thing into my app. But I don't really want to run a connector and like sort of get very deep into the Interledger ecosystem. I just kind of want, you know, like simple APIs. And so um, this middle area would skew more towards um, kind of the REST APIs. So in Rust connector, there's like a slash send, uh, likewise in Java. So this is like, you can just spin up curl and make a, an HTTP call and get, a, get a, an Interledger node to like do stuff for you. You can get a balance. And then the next one would be like, okay, I, I, I've integrated in my app. Um, I see this is pretty simple. I wanna go one step deeper. And I actually wanna either run my own connector or I want to kind of speak Interledger natively in code. And I think then this really narrows you to either Rust, Java, or JavaScript. And so, um, you know, we'll have like a sort of a third area for, for going deeper. I think the site now also has um, some great content around like settlement and operating kind of like a local testnet um, set of connectors with settlement so you can kind of see everything in action. Um, Kincaid wrote, wrote most of that, I think, with, with Lois. Uh, who's working at Spring. So that's kind of the rough idea is just sort of like cleaning that up, making it uh, easier for somebody to understand and then creating a path um, for like more advanced interledger usage. Okay, cool. Um, what are the, out of interest for in these hackathons, what are people doing with interledger? Like where do they, in those three buckets, where do they tend to land? 
Yeah, mo most people at hackathons, uh, a lot of them are at colleges. So these are like computer science students. Um, and so a lot of them have never, really, like maybe they've heard of interledger as a, as a term, but they aren't really involved in the community yet. And so I think the prime usage there is just kind of those first two, like, oh, that's neat. Uh, these wallets seem to work and I have money somewhere uh, at the moment, like either in Rafiki wallet or I mean Rafiki money or like a spring test net wallet. And then it's like, um, you know, if, if used at all, it would be like, I want to, I want to hit these simple rest endpoints. So one thing we're working on at spring is um, like an ILP SDK, which uh, for lack of a better name is basically just like, how do we put it, put in code these simple wrappers to access these rest endpoints. So you could think of it like send money, get balance would be two um, kind of baseline things. If you wanted to have an app that's um, like kind of using Interledger, but not actually like you don't want to run your own connector and you don't want to run all the infrastructure of Interledger. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, those APIs, um, I haven't checked, but like last I last time I looked at what those APIs look like on the Rust connector, they're not a hundred percent complete. Like I guess there's some there's some stuff that's unanswered questions at least. Like when I want to send, like what can I can I specify the amount the recipient gets, or do I is everything with do I have to have a sort of uh, a range that I'm kind of comfortable with, like. Interledger is not as simple as sort of, you know, send $10 and the recipient get $10, obviously, because your account could be denominated in dollars, but the recipient's account could be in euros. You don't know what the rate's going to be, uh, et cetera. Um, so how, how are you guys thinking about that? Yeah, great question. Uh, in Rust, it's pretty simple. I think they only kind of support, uh, I believe it's the sender mode. So if you're saying like send 10, Okay. Uh, I think it's just going to try and like send no, 10 no matter what. Okay. Um, Kincaid's done some work there. I think he can speak to that implementation uh, in a minute. In, in the Java side, which will be, um, it's quite a bit more sophisticated. So there's two different modes, right? You can specify, um, I want to send 10 and I don't, I don't really care what, what gets there within some range. So you can specify a slippage amount or you will be able to. Uh, right. we kind of call that like sender mode or sender amount mode receiver amount mode would be like, um, I want 10 to get to you. Um, and in that mode, it's like, I, you know, in the naive case, I don't care how much it costs me. Um, uh, but then there's a slippage guard, uh, so that mm. it doesn't like drain your account. And then there's a bunch of other sort of knobs in the Java implementation around timing. So for example, if I want to send you 10 um, and I have some slippage, but maybe I need that to happen within 30 seconds um, or maybe I don't care. So you, you can imagine like on one extreme is like, this needs to happen very quickly. Mm. Uh, and then on the other side, it might be like, this should never end, right? It's just like a, an open-ended stream maybe. Hmm. Um, it's kind of unusual for like the API, like a rest, the rest API case to have it like never end. So, um, probably more work there, but 
Um, how, how, yeah. how do you, um, how do you receive? Can yeah, you so like receiving... register for a webhook or like, how would you do that? Not yet. Um, but we're planning on that. So right now you, you can just basically do get, get balance. And I think, uh, a coming, probably the next endpoint that we implement will be something like get transactions. So as you okay. receive, then, um, yeah, either a webhook or you'd be pulling your, either your get balance or your transactions endpoint. Yeah. So this is basically an abstraction on top of stream, right? Yeah, this is like, um, you could think of it like hosted stream, right? So in this case, spring infrastructure will have uh, what you could think of as like sender infrastructure. And so when you make these calls, like to send money, spring is managing, um, you know, all of the sort of threads, if you will, of the sender and making sure that it um, doesn't oversend or undersend or, you know, kind of has mm -hmm. rational decision making in various conditions. And then on the other side, the receiver is the same. Mm. Um, so I'll kind of work in progress right now. We, we have um, the APIs I would say are, are pretty good. So even the responses that you get back from send money, for example, like there's quite a bit of um, information, like the amount you tried to send, the amount that actually sent, stuff like that. So I think okay. over time you'll see this, at least the spring testnet infrastructure get more sophisticated. Um, and basically we're building a testnet wallet on top of all of this infrastructure. So cool. um, similar to what, what you guys are doing with Rafiki money, I think we have a lot of the okay. same kind of problems connecting our wallet to the connector. Yeah. So the thing the I guess, uh, well, not, I guess, uh, where, where I'm going is I'm seeing strong analogy here to like the IP stack and the, you know, the fact that when I want to send data from my PC, for example, there's an IP stack built in as a TCP stack, but I don't directly interface with them. I have, there's a sort of standardized API into that stack, the, the socket API. And, and we've talked for years about like, what would that look like? And, and in many respects, like the interfaces exposed by the stream libraries is sort of, is that API today? But it does make me wonder, and I think you know, I'm scratching here, but I think like a couple of calls back, we talked about this and, and coming up with some sort of standard for like the abstract interface into the stream layer. So what does the interface look like that applications consume? And I think that was one thing that we actually discussed with Stefan when he was here was that figuring that out has is incomplete because we didn't have a good enough idea of what the applications were going to need, what were applications actually going to um, want to be able to do with that interface. You, you can't, Stefan's exact words, um, and he can correct me here, is you can't design an interface from one side. Like you have to know what the capabilities exist under behind the interface based on what the protocol says, you know, the stream layer must do. But then you also have like, what are the requirements of the layer above? Like, what does it actually want to be able to achieve? So an example would be like an application wants to be able to say, um, let me know whenever a money comes in. So that's like the equivalent of, you know, listen, uh, or uh, open a connection, and so let, let, let me be more explicit, open a connection, um, or at least let me know whenever a connection comes in and then notify me when money comes in on that connection. 
like that's sort of the the listen you know socket api but then there's also this on the on the sending side like it's more complicated with stream than for example with uh you know tcp because you open the connection and then like you have you don't just send some data and get an act that it was delivered you you want to know how much was delivered and you also want to do things like say um you know don't deliver it if less than a certain amount arrives on the other side etc so I think like for me, this is the next frontier of where the community should be designing, like the next set of sort of standards. We're moving up the stack slowly. I think the interface from stream into ILP is pretty well defined and every, you know, we've got three working implementations that are relatively, I think are, are all work the same. Um, but the next is now, yeah, the, this interface. So we'd, uh, uh, I think I'd be very keen at least to participate in the design of that. If you guys are up for, making it a collaborative effort and and even if you want to lead with your implementation um and we take that as a sort of reference and we work from there um maybe rest is a good uh sort of non-technology specific way of uh designing that abstraction i don't know any other thoughts on the call about that i just uh adrian wanted to uh, quickly echo like agree on all fronts and I think just one observation I have is that it's it's okay I think as a community to have these different layers so for example like in the internet analogy like it's okay that sometimes people use rest api's and sometimes people use sockets and and everything in between I think that um, is this should also be okay in interledger so for example, uh, your point about use cases driving the technology is like, I think spot on because if I'm a hacker at a hackathon and I just want to send money, like, and I'm in Go, let's say, like implementing the entire interledger stack may not make sense and it may not even be available. Whereas if I'm, you know, like some of the work in stream receipts and whatnot, it needs to be at a lower layer. And so, Anyway, just wanted to point out that we don't we don't have to be like everything is an OPEI or everything is a REST API or everything is native interledger. Like the whole stack can live together for whatever use case. Uh, okay, um, may I'm 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 chewing on that a bit. Um, like I, I maybe we missed each other a little bit. Like I'm I'm definitely talking in analogies here. So I'm not talking specifically about uh, using REST versus like T TCP raw sockets if you're using the internet stack. I'm more saying, you know, the analogy is that stream is, you know, stream is to ILP what like let's say TCP is to IP. And the sockets API on any platform is what gives you access to that stack. And that's the sockets API is like a platform specific thing. It's sort of it's pretty standardized. Different frameworks will expose it to you in different ways. Um, so if you're like a Java programmer, you'll get something different to a C-sharp programmer or a programmer or whatever. But in general, the patterns are the same. It's like, you know, I want to receive connections, then I listen on a port, the connection comes in, um, I have a stream, I start, you know, sending and receiving data. I want to make a connection, I provide the connection details for the other side. Um, once the connection's open, I start sending and receiving data. So I think like that that interface is what it feels like you're defining here at the sort of 
the, the, the what is what applications you what interfaces it that applications want to consume to use stream um, and in some respects and maybe I'm staring at this through like really squinting the rest API on the rust connector to me feels a bit like that it's just that the it's over rest instead of like a sort of a more sort of bare API Anyway, I, I don't want to. I don't want to sort of chew up all the time. Um, any other thoughts on the call? Uh, anyone else um, have thoughts on this topic? Yeah, I, I I agree. I think it's very important that we kind of figure out what that interface looks like for wallets. I think it it seems hard for me. It seems hard that we would. It seems like that would be a hard thing to standardize, um, which is actually a reason I really like kind of delegated access uh, because I think it could circumvent uh, standardizing that in some ways. If you can make the interface interledger in more places rather than kind of something else, that's much more, would probably be much more complex. Um, with respect to the Rust APIs, Right now, I don't think like the API, like the the REST APIs exposes to send payments are kind of what wallets would want. Um, what it supports right now is just sending by source amounts and enforcing minimum exchange rates uh, using that. So you specify some you have you have exchange rates in your in your connector. You specify some slippage, and it ensures that the payment meets that rate. Um, I think there was a lot of like work in the stream sender that would make it kind of simpler to implement uh, pay by destination amount in the Rust connector, but there are definitely like a lot of consideration. It, there's there's definitely an open question around like what what API endpoints like would a wallet uh, want and what does that what does that interface look like? Okay, cool, thanks, Kincaid. Um, I may have, I may be, yeah, maybe I'm squinting too hard to see this, but I, maybe the the REST API is then a bad a bad way of talking about it. I mean, the current API, I guess the one we started with is the interface you consume if you're using the stream libraries in Node. And I'm guessing there's similar if you use the, the Rust and the um, Java stream senders, like you've got an interface there for sending, then there must be an interface for receiving. Maybe that's more where we want to think. And, and I agree, I don't think we necessarily need to standardize them, but I do think the patterns are kind of standard, standardized. Like if you think about the TCP IP stack, like you, the, the, the general pattern is standardized. The specifics um, tend to be, yeah, sort of slightly different because of the environment you're in. Uh, and then a, a comment on the delegated access thing, like in my mind, what we're asking, if we do delegated access, so basically if I understand what you're suggesting is everything is raw ILP. And basically if you want to, um, if you want to like send money as an application, you speak raw ILP. Or if you want to receive money, you speak raw ILP, but you speak it to through like the recipient's um, wallet. And I guess my only concern there is what we're like, to reuse the analogy what we're asking people is to say there's no tcp in the stack there's only ip 
And if you want to use it, then you have to implement your own TCP stack in your application. Like you have to pull it in as a library always, um, which feels a bit weird to me, but maybe, you know, I think like let's experiment and see, um, see how that, how that goes. Adrian, I, um, it's occurring to me that the, like at least my view of the intent of the REST APIs is not necessarily like a normative higher layer uh, way that you should access Interledger. It's more of a, it's more of a convenience response. So like the two prime problems of like native Interledger access, whether it's stream or some library built on top of stream is uh, twofold. One, it's probably likely that um, the like native stream or even like the next layer of stream is just isn't implemented in in a given developer's language. Like we only cover like three languages right now um, and not even perfectly there, even it's in stream. It's like mostly there in stream, but like higher layer, there's almost nothing in native language. And then the other thing would be just convenience for developer. Um, like even even running a stream sender, if you have higher layer semantics on top of stream is still uh, sort of difficult. Streams fail, machines crash. So um, anyway, I just wanted to point that out that it, the REST API is more of a reaction. It's not necessarily like a well thought out, this is the next layer that should be used. Yeah. Fair, sorry, yeah, so that's, that's as, I, the, as I was saying, I mean, maybe I was making a mistake there and sort of stretching a bit um, to talk about the REST API there. I, I think we probably want to focus on the actual interfaces to the different stream implementations and see if we can align in some respect around those all supporting the use cases that the applications need. Um, the, the REST API solve a different problem. Um, yeah, I just want to add as well that um, Something we should always consider when we're trying to define something um, for a standard is for interoperability and if it is solving that. So like standardized interfaces basically solve interoperability. Um, if I think like if I'm using an HTTP client currently uh, in the node ecosystem, if I'm using request or Axios or uh, got or anything like that, they, all the APIs are generally different anyway um, because they don't really care about interoperability because that's not what they're trying to solve. Like you're very rarely going to change them out. And when you do, you'll be able to go, like it won't break the other side of the equation. It'll break your code. Um, so that's something we must always think about when we're doing this and something that open payments is trying to do is minimize what we're trying to standardize and only care about things we standardize where we care about interoperability. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. Um... I get it. so the point I'm I'm trying to push here is that even though the APIs might not be standard, there's going to be certain patterns that just have to be the same. Like, you know, under the hood, you can't write a, for example, like writing an HTTP client that has, operates on a completely different pattern to another is possible with limitations. Like, you know. Um, asynchronous versus synchronous APIs, for example, like those have evolved and those exist, but um, you still, for example, with H and HTTP client expect to have a request and a response. Like you can't um, suddenly turn an HTTP client into like some sort of streaming uh, interface without, you know, some expectations of the other side supporting that. 
So I'm just, I'm conscious that like we, we haven't really sat down and mapped out what are the basic functions of a stream library that need to be exposed. We have things like, you know, set receive max, set send max. Um, so we have the, you know, the early designs of what we thought that should be, but, you know, to reemphasize the point, now we're actually consuming those libraries in wallets and things, and we're finding that maybe not everything we need is available. And so it may be that we have to add stuff to the protocol itself, like receipts, or it may be that the libraries just need to um, add some new functions that are still possible without this protocol itself changing. I, I don't know. I just, I'm, I'm conscious that we don't, like, if I were to, uh, think about how I would use stream to perform certain use cases. It's not always clear to me which functions of the stream libraries I would use or if the necessary ones exist for me to do what I want to do. And what would be even worse is if they do in some language implementations, but they don't in others. Um, yeah, uh, I hope that makes sense. Anyway, we've got uh, about 10 minutes uh, left. David, thanks. Yeah, thanks for the update. Um, uh, I've seen a lot of the document. This started out as a conversation about the documentation. So um, in terms of all those pull requests and so on, any uh, input from like other people in the community that you need? Um, are you guys mostly adding new content uh, or, or is there like strategy to go and revise some of the existing stuff? Yeah, I think it'll be mostly new content and then just um, trying to remove uh, probably like links that go to places that just aren't, aren't useful. Like if software is either not working or unmaintained or, or whatever, like um, maybe we bias towards removing, although happy to have feedback on any of those uh, pull requests. I think there's some comments outstanding even now. Um, so really the goal is to just improve the initial developer experience. So. Uh, there's no real, you know, uh, purpose outside of, of that. Okay. Um, I mean, it does kind of raise the question that came up at the ILP summit and maybe I don't think there was consensus on um, around what is the right way for people to, you know, like uh, test Interledger. I think um, there's an argument for if you want to just play with Interledger and not real money, you should just spin up your own little private network and not worry about settlements and just you know send packets backwards and forwards and build on it and then assume that when you take what you've built to the real network everything below you know the stream layer is sort of, you don't need to concern yourself with um and then i know there you know there's existing test nets that um you know you can go and play with as well uh I guess I'm still on the fence whether those are a good or a bad idea. I, I, like, I guess for the sake of being able to play with wallets and understand the user experience, um, I guess it makes sense to have them. I don't know if uh, you or anyone has strong opinions on that. Yeah, I, I think it should be a progression. So I think um, at some point there should be an option for a developer to go like install their own connector or, or send a receiver or whatever they're doing locally. Uh, feedback we've gotten though is like um, either developer doesn't want to do that they, they sort of just want to like 
log into Rafiki Money or, or Spring version of that and just like send money back and forth just to kind of like see how it works. What do these payment pointers do? You know, how, what does it look like? How fast does the stream finish? Stuff like that just to kind of get like a high level feel. Um, we've also had some developers that are like, well, I tried to install the connector, like, I don't know which one it was, like on App Engine, for example, which has its own sort of uh, sharp edges. And it didn't work, and I got stuck and kind of just abandoned. So like, um, that's a gap. Like, if, if developers want to run a connector on App Engine, like, we should have a tutorial or, or like, make that work. But um, that shouldn't be like the first thing. Like, if I can't get it installed on App Engine, a connector, like I should have a fallback, which would be like, well, maybe I'll use Spring's connector so I don't have to run my own because I'm really just I'm writing an app. And when I'm writing an app, like running a connector is sort of an orthogonal concern, probably one that I want to outsource. Yeah, I, it, it feels like what um, we probably want for those there, there's some sort of intermediate space there where it's not it's you're running a connector but it's not really it's just like a money it's a money d type thing but where maybe the interface in isn't ilp as well it's you know i've got an sdk that has the address of an uplink and it's speaking raw lp to that thing um but i've got you know the stream libraries basically to interface with not um a raw btp socket and so I build my app around stream libraries in the language of my choice, and I just configure my uplink credentials, and it just works. Yeah, so where that breaks down is like when you're not in one of the three languages that can give you uh, that native access. Like even if you are running a MoneyD, if you're writing an app in Go or Python or myriad other languages, um, there just is no SDK for you. So kind of the tack at, that Spring is taking is we were advertising uh, basically these endpoints for common functionality, like send money, get balance. And then um, we're building SDKs. Like we'll probably also have um, gRPC endpoints so that we can like generate SDKs across like the 10 or 12 languages that gRPC supports. And then when a hacker comes to a hackathon, like any language they come, there's like an immediate get started and, and everything just works. And then the progression would be, um, you know, hopefully you can go deeper from there. But mm. without, without that like sort of initial stub, if you will, um, it's just like unclear, like how does a Go developer even do what you just said? Sure, I, I agree with you on that gap. I think like my preference would be if a developer wants to um, build like ILP into their application. So they're writing something, bearing in mind, we're talking about something that would need to be like always online. Um, so it's sort of maybe think of it as like server side. If they're gonna build something, they should just build on top of like stream and say, cool, and pull in stream uh, sender and receiver in whatever language and use that. But if it's not available in their language, then pull in an SDK that speaks to, you know, a remote service, I guess. Um, that was where I was sort of thinking of those rest endpoints as, as sort of uh, column stubs to the stream, just because you can't import stream directly into your app, you have a 
SDK that speaks to REST endpoints that do it for you. Yeah, makes sense. Okay, um, we are pretty much out of time. We've got five minutes left. Any, any other comments on that or any volunteers to write a Go uh, stream implementation? Python? There might already be. <laughs> I, I suspect there probably are some out there. We just need to... Uh, there might actually be two Go stream implementations. <laughs> Yeah, so, so we, we need to get those into the fold. Yeah. And especially given that I think, you know, a huge amount of the complexity in building the stack is in the routing. And if all you want is something that has a single uplink, um, you can build something pretty lightweight uh, and, and, you know, worry about adding all the, you know, routing stuff later, like um, the, the, you know, connected to connector protocol stuff um, goes away. Um, anyway, that's something worth, maybe, maybe Matt, Karen, Don, we can chat a bit about that, um, see if there's something we can contribute there or pick up some previously done work and maybe get it to a point that it's useful um, to people to use for this. Any other business, any other topics anyone wants to quickly get off their chest before we wrap up? Okay, um, in that case, we'll meet again in a couple of weeks, which puts us at the 18th of March. Uh, thanks everyone for joining. Apologies again for the late start. Um, I will work on my infrastructure challenges and hopefully have them resolved by the time we speak again. Chat you all in hey. two weeks time. I think the good news is for those of us in the States, the time zone switches back for the next one. So won't be quite as... Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll make sure I get the um, invite out. Um, I'll send out an invite that has a calendar, um, you know, attachment, an ICS attachment um, in the next couple of days. So that's in your calendar and, and you know, because the invite is is rooted in, in UTC. So um, it should, if you install it in your calendar, give you the correct time. But what, yeah, I think what that does mean is next call will be a little bit later for everyone in the US, am I correct? It should be an hour later. I know, I know uh, late, late last year when I started, it was an hour later than it is now. I, I think the calendar adjusts automatically, but maybe I'm wrong. I, the latest few, the last couple of calls I sent out an ICS that does have a recurring event. So it should have prepared, followed, you know, it, if you, once you added it to your calendar, you should see it uh, in perpetuity. But uh, I do attach it to the agenda every week, just in case. If you have a, if you have an email client like Gmail or whatever, it'll automatically suggest that it goes in your calendar. Um, Cool. I will chat to you guys in a couple of weeks. And for those of you who have time zone changes, you get to stay in bed an extra hour. <laughs> Thanks again, everyone. Cheers.